1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas Ice House is blaring on the stereo It's humid and dangerous And a young man has decided to join the police force To fight crime That man, of course, is my dad Loose Units, the podcast, was created To tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book Loose Units But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales That I wrote based on the real crimes My dad solved on the force Back in the early 80s So this season, dad and I are finally going to go back 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 to the year 1980, and each week we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book, and Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins. Every week I sit down with Dad and we kind of go through the stories behind the stories from my book Loose Units, which I wrote about Dad's time as a cop in the 1980s. Now, Dad, one of the things that keeps coming up throughout all of our, you know, podcasts and uh, my books and our live shows, there's sort of this recurring character. And I say character, but I'm actually referring to a real person and uh, not a very nice one by all accounts, kind of a scary guy. And last night, Tegan sent me a news article, which just hit the uh, Sydney Morning Herald a couple of days ago. And actually yesterday, yeah, March 14th, 7.30 p.m. 2021. And I got this article from the City Morning Herald, which sort of weirdly ties together a whole bunch of your stories. So I, I thought what we could do is just to pause our recaps of the cases from the book and sort of skip around a little bit in time to try and establish some sort of fleshed out picture of this event and this person. I know I'm being cryptic, but you know who I'm talking about, right?
3: initials uh, AS. Yes. Shall I say any more than that?
1: Uh, yeah, it's Adam Savage from Mythbusters. No, it's uh, Abe Saffron. Now, many of you will actually know who Abe Saffron is or at least have heard the name, but Dad, I called you last night and let you know about this article. So I'm just going to kind of give a bit of a bit of a breeze through of this article and regular listeners and readers of my books will know why this is a big deal. Uh, the article was called Lunar Park Fire, the files that linked a Sydney underworld figure to a tragedy. At 10.15 on the night of June the 9th, 1979, flames engulfed the ghost train at Lunar Park. Six children and one adult were killed. Nearly 30 years later, award-winning Herald investigative journalist Kate McClarmont revealed claims that Australia's most notorious crime figure, Abe Saffron, was behind the deadly fire at the popular Fun Park on the shores of Sydney Harbour. Uh, now, I'm going through this story... And um, the journalist actually spoke with Anne Buckingham, who was a niece of Abe Saffron, who told McClymont, the name of the reporter, I don't think people were meant to be killed. So I think the idea was the fires were to basically... I'm guessing it was some sort of land grab, but essentially the article goes on to say Saffron, who was linked to seven other blazes, was the subject of a later National Crime Authority investigation into the fires. Now... When the trails are gone cold, the report stated, Luna Park, it was alleged, had been coveted by Saffron for over 20 years and the fire in the ghost train had been lit as a trigger to evict the incumbent tenants and gain control of the park lease for himself. The investigation series also revealed the truth about Abe Saffron's crimes and his very powerful friends. It kind of goes on and it talks about detective stuff and then there was a really interesting article that came out this morning, I believe, which basically says, "From and uh, Dad, tell me if you agree with this appraisal of Abe Saffron. Um, From the mid-40s to the mid-70s, Saffron was the King of King's Cross, running virtually every brothel, strip club and bar along Darlinghurst Road. In the three decades that Saffron prowled Sydney's streets, there were few criminal activities that the man dubbed Mr. Sin was not alleged to be involved in. But his main criminal endeavours, which helped him amass a $25 million fortune, included brothels, insurance fraud, bribing police, liquor offences, blackmail, extortion and arson. Would you say that's a fair appraisal of Abe Saffron? Definitely.
3: Of course, back in that time, uh, he could not have done any of that without the complicity or the uh, of the sort of the tacit oh, approval so. mm. of, of the uh, New South Wales police force. Obviously, not the entire police force, but um, definitely, uh, you know, the detectives and licensing police um, with a hundred percent. Who are like what,
1: what? are what are licensing police for those of us who don't know.
3: Licensing police was one of those. Um, we had licensing police. Two of them at North Sydney Police Station. They were actually up in the detectives' office. Yeah, and they were affable, charming, charismatic. I would describe them as really nice people. Mm. But I, I was kind of naive in a way. I didn't fully understand what they what they did. But every single person in 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 our area, or if it was Darlinghurst, they would have had licensing police there. And any club or establishment that sells alcohol has to submit an application, and the licensing police, they actually go around and sort of check it out and just sort of get a sense of um, the business that will be carried on. Okay. And uh, liquor licensing in New South Wales, the laws are very strict, Um but funnily enough, Paul, just up from us is the uh, the famous bourbon. It's called the Bourbon now. But it I used think that, yeah, called, it rings used a bell. It to be the Bourbon and Beefsteak. Yep. And um, there was a time when it was the only establishment, at least in New South Wales, possibly Australia, in the heart of the Sleaze, um, that had a 24-hour liquor licence. Now, you've got to ask yourself, I mean, how on earth? And these establishments, a lot of them up here were owned by Abe Saffron and um he has been implicated in many um nefarious um stories pertaining to uh mainly the eastern suburbs of sydney but um
1: you are being he, quite cryptic he... given that like i mean you've you've been quite sort of vague and cryptic whereas before you've told me that he was a really active presence uh mm. well in he was staff. but he but he was he was clever
3: in that he um Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but I believe that he actually never, um, to my knowledge, actually physically did anything to anyone. He
1: always had henchmen. And you've—I yeah. mean, there, there's a story. I think it's near the start of Electric Blue. You know the the, the story with the leg breaking, or was that in the mm. loose units?
3: Yeah, um, that was. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And that was uh, what was the name of the guy? Um, Lenny McPherson. Lenny McPherson. So he, so basically, Abe Saffron. Did that sort of mafia boss thing of never actually having a hand physically in doing any of these things, but pulling no. all of the strings? Correct. Right? He 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 was um,
3: the overseer mm. of much misery. Um, but I guess Paul, in life, any organization, any anything that makes money, yeah, be it prostitution, drugs. And of course, you've got all these arguments and some of the arguments are very, very um, persuasive about legalizing lots of these things. But the thing is, Paul and listeners, that when you legalize something, the criminal element, they don't just sort of pack up their bags and go and get nine to five jobs. Um, They still hunt out the, the criminal sort of Activities and what they do is they, if you ban something or legalize something, let's say you're a big time drug dealer and um, you're dealing in say, well let's say marijuana, and then and you've got all your illegal plantations and you've got your you know your standover men and you've got your supply chains which are often bikey gangs and all of a sudden the government comes in and says you know what we're going to legalize marijuana, everyone can just go to the local chemist and buy their stash. Now, the, the the criminal gang, the underworld organizations that were making immense profit out of this illegal business, they all of a sudden don't go, oh, okay, now that's finished and now we're just never going to do anything bad again. No, no, they what they do is they come up with another idea. So, you know, legalizing things is one thing, but these crime syndicates, they still require income.
1: I think the, the legalising marijuana specifically argument is really valid and I don't think people are pushing to legalise it so that the people who deal illegally will be driven away. What you're saying is that um, the, the, obviously there's multiple reasons for making things legal and illegal um, and there are certain things that are legal that I think probably shouldn't be as much. Um, mm. But, yeah, okay, so if you make... Because, I mean, I keep thinking of, of Saffron and he has a certain kind of Prohibition-era vibe to him. Mm, definitely. And, and King's Cross, you know, I mean, it's been gentrified to the bullshit now. I mean, it's still got those lovely fuzzy areas, but it has been, you know, partly gentrified. Mm. But you really, you can tell that stuff went down there. And you, you telling me these stories uh, and the kind of retellings I've done of them, uh, obviously, that you know, there are things that happened in Kings Cross uh, at the behest of people like Abe Safran. Actually, no, not even people like him. It seems like he was kind of the guy, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. seems like he was he was the one who did this stuff. Um, I keep mm-hmm. reading through his uh, these these records and. I'm just going to read you this paragraph, Dad. One devastating police intelligence record uh, record from the mid-70s has never been made public. It notes a cluster of the state's most senior police attending a secret meeting with Saffron in an unfashionable eastern Suburbs restaurant in which he had an interest. Considering this meeting did not include Police Commissioner Merv Wood nor Deputy Commissioner Bill Allen, both of whom were later ruined by their associations with Saffron, it's no surprise that few junior officers were prepared to take Saffron on. Not for arson, not for drugs, not even for murder. And then it talks about his connections in politics, business, public service, local council, the immigration department, and in the judiciary, all the way to the highest court of the land. It seems like... And then, of course, one quote here. um, He's never killed, choked, or stabbed to death anyone in the 25 years I have known him. And that's from a close associate. But that doesn't really mean he didn't do things. No, that's right.
3: No. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like saying... um well, let's look. Let's take the situation in Myanmar at the moment, where yesterday thirty-seven people were shot dead on the streets, and um, you know the the general that's running the show, he didn't go out and fire. You know, he didn't. He's not shooting bullets. No, he's not killing people. But he he's definitely um, the guy that is giving his officers carte blanche to go out and do whatever they like. So that's why in 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 major sort of you know, like genocide, that, that's like the Nuremberg trials, you had to, it goes right to the top. And when people that high up, um, you know, they are complicit. And um,
1: they well, Not even But not, not even, I don't even think complicit. Like they they gave the orders,
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah.
1: their initiative. Um, mm. And then there would be people,
3: there would be sort of sub-lieutenants and, and junior staff that have been employed expressly for for their 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 human traits. Like um, remember uh, the Lenny McPherson story where they had to collect debt and they um, you know they they used that massive hammer and smashed the guy's femur yeah. in front of the eight year old girl. Now that and was Lenny she McPherson. Then, yeah and she then she, ran outside she, and and got the Regger number of the white Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Now The driver of that particular car that day was a known paranoid schizophrenic and he was a complete mind-bending psychopath who was a violent scumbag. And these are the types of people that were employed by these dead shit assholes. Now, the thing, Paul, is that, you know, here's a fun fact, listeners. Abe Saffron, who was implicated in... I mean, when, when we say implicated in and we hear about seven or eight um, arson attacks in Sydney... Yeah. Well, can you imagine the ones we don't know about? I mean, arson is an insidious crime. The most terrible thing about arson is when the arsonist sets fire to a dwelling and unbeknownst to the arsonist, or they do know and they don't give a shit... Is when people are inside. There was a classic case in Balmain a few years ago where a guy was doing an insurance job in his own um, small business, yeah, and there was a flat above, and people burnt to death. Um, and it's just so it's 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 terrible. But when but look, if you're going to um, say run an airline and you want cabin crew, yeah, the chances are. That you are going to employ people that um, are generally fairly sociable, um, are coherent in their diction. They they they're just different horses for different courses. If you are running an underworld sort of gangster, thug, scary establishment where full full where fear mm. rules. I mean, fear is an incredible thing. It's a very powerful um sort of tool that these organizations use fear and terror i mean that's how these organizations work and you know it's like the stasi in um in east east germany and then you get to the stage where you can't trust anybody it's like a family and you're either in the family or you're out of the family now it's all based on... And then, of course, you've got your family. So they say to you, look, if you don't do this, you know, we'll, we'll come around, we'll pay you a visit and we'll maybe get rid of your wife and kids. And it's just this... It, look, it's be living life in in, in just ab, abject terror. And one of the people that was um, sort of instigated with or involved or it was inferred that he was one of the, the arsonists working for Abe Saffron... Yeah. And here's a fact that I didn't know until yesterday. He's one of the Murphy brothers. Now, are you familiar with the Murphy brothers? I'm not, no. Okay, well, the Murphy brothers were a group of guys um, and they were the guys that raped and killed Anita Cobby. That is in itself, that that is one of the most terrifying murders in Australia's legal history, the case of Anita Cobby. It's... Those guys are still in jail, and one of these guys was employed by um, Abe Saffron. And um, I think what what I'd like to do, Paul, because that terrible Lunar Park fire happened in nineteen seventy nine. I was nineteen.
1: Can you hear me, Mum?
4: Yes, I can hear you.
1: Could you talk me through, and could you talk myself and the listeners through what you saw? on the night of june the 9th 1979 and where you were and kind of set the stage a little bit for us
4: um well i was living in a flat um my first flat that i shared with a friend from school and in neutral bay so it was up on the hill and looking across out of the lounge room window um towards the submarine base down the bottom there um, and I just remember because we're going back a few decades here don't forget without giving my age away <laughs> um, <laughs> that there were lots of fire engines constant stream of fire engines and police cars and lots of bright light in the in the distance but I wasn't really aware because it was a different you know I mean back then we didn't have access to a computer at home and the internet and it wasn't instant news gratification so it mm. wasn't until the next day in the newspapers that we realized what all of the um activity was about about the fire down at Luna Park
1: yeah okay so you see so you basically you saw this happening and how old were you at this point
4: um give me the year again it was 1979 okay so 79 so I would have been um 20 just before or just before actually nineteen, just before I joined the police force, like it was only very soon after there that I joined the police force. do
1: you find it a bit weird that uh someone who was kind of a thorn in the side and sort of you know complicit with a lot of bent cops throughout you know your career and your that era of policing had potentially lit an iconic fire that you kind of watched from a distance. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? well, in hindsight, mm. yes but at the time of
4: course I wasn't aware of um, the underbelly of Sydney and yeah. the uh, the gangsters um, I didn't pff, I was blissfully unaware but not for much longer.
1: <laughs> right. Did you ever come across uh, like r- uh, references to Abe Saffron or run into any of anything related to him during your time as a cop?
4: Yeah, yeah people talked about it in the background hushed tones but it depends who it was. I mean it was Generally, if you're general duties, which is where I mostly worked, Mm -hmm. you were just out there doing your stuff. Um, And, I mean, I think probably your dad, because he worked in other um, parts of the police force in forensics and fingerprints and the like, so Mm. he got to rub shoulders with and had more insight into that side of things back then. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I was a little bit innocent. I I did hear things on the grapevine, the police grapevine, but I just you know, kept a low profile and got on and did my job. So. Yeah, okay. Okay.
1: You're very pragmatic. I like that. Well, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for popping on the show, Mum. I know you got to get back to work. but uh,
4: th- My pleasure. Th-
1: thanks for coming and say hi.
4: Okay, I'll hand back to John.
1: Hey <laughs> okay, bye, Mum. Okay, so there's something here that I wanted to kind of quickly run by you, Dad. Hmm. So during this article, where is it? Yeah. So the article uh, did say Saffron, who was linked to seven other blazers and it actually
2: breaks down some of really the interesting stuff here so
1: In 1986, the police minister, and you were on the police force in 86, mm. weren't you? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, the police minister asked the NCA to investigate Saffron's alleged involvement in the fires, along with fraud, bribery, and corruption of police officers in the supply of prohibited drugs. The 17-month report tabled in Parliament in 1989 revealed that a month after the fire, the Anglers Club in Crow's Nest was destroyed by fire. Saffron was rumoured to own the club along with Sullivan and Morgan Ryan. Over the next two years, fires damaged a further six premises in which Saffron or uh, Maximovich, who I think was um, yeah, I've got to go back a bit. And New South Wales coroner Neville Walsh had recommended Saffron and his associate Todor Tosha the Torch Maskimovich, uh, Maximovich, sorry, be charged with conspiracy to commit arson and fraud, but no charges were laid. Wonder why. So over the next two years, damaged. Um, over the next two years, fires damaged the further six premises in which Saffron or uh, Maximovich either owned or leased. They included the Wonder Center, a King's Cross brothel, the Peak Restaurant, a Gay Nightclub in Bondi Junction, an abandoned disco in Bondi, and Saffron's nightclub, the Venus Room, in Orwell Street, King's Cross. Now what strikes me as odd is that you kept getting drawn back to Lunar Park. You weren't just sort of oscillating around Saffron-related crimes, which you were, you know, you were dealing with that kind of fallout throughout your career. But you kept getting kind of drawn back to Lunar Park. Now, the body... The body that washed up in Lunar Park in a recent episode, clearly that wasn't um, related to this in any way. But... Do you find it odd that Lunar Park became this sort of weird kind of like a like a ley line, like a nexus for sort of saffron related stuff? I mean, back in the um, fire brigade season, you told a story about the park being uh, there was an attempted fire at the park and you said someone sabotaged the pumps. Hmm, Uh, Now, do you think that was saffron related?
3: Paul, I most definitely do. Okay. But that's an opinion but, you know how things, there's a, there's a theme going through this, our, you know, our podcasts the books. Um, you know, um, I stood opposite the Persian room a few weeks back and posted a photograph on my Instagram account. Right. Um, and that's that terrible place where the bouncers... Um, are we going to talk about this? I guess it's going to be in the future. It's they...
1: in, well, it's in Electric Blue, but because oh, it's in fantastic. Electric Blue, it's already oh. kind of been touched on on those Cool, podcasts. cool. All
3: right, but that, that's just the, the sort of example of how these how these sort of henchmen, mm-hmm. and, and they, they, they're they still around today, these people, not, not these people, but these types of people. Yeah. I mean, I see um, certain people, um, in fact, a very, very... Um, did I tell you the story a few weeks ago about a really famous criminal... Have I mentioned this to you? I'm not and sure. My, and my ute? Have I told you and the listeners this story? A famous criminal and your ute? Mm. There is a very, very famous, very notorious criminal in this city. And he, I guess, is a bit of a scary guy. Um, I've never really met the guy. But he's friends with other not so bad, but really famous people. Mm. And some of these really famous people that er- that everyone in Sydney knows, some of them park wherever they want to. So, they park their certain cars in certain places that they're not supposed to, which precludes me from parking in those spots, i.e. loading zones. Now, you're... Sound-
1: <laughs> this is...
2: Uh,
1: is this going to get us in trouble? Or are we okay? No,
3: because I'm being very careful. Yes,
1: you are. Okay, yep,
3: yep. I'm being extremely careful. And
1: I'm going to ask you off mic who the actual people are. Just, oh, yeah, I'll a- tell you off
3: mic. Great, okay. okay. And people might like to guess. I'm not even going to describe their stature because if I describe their stature, mm. everyone will know who I'm talking about. Yep. So I'm sitting in my ute and it's very close to where we live. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular coffee shop in this area that is absolutely um, well known. Sorry, listeners, that was my phone. Oh, dad. Um, Sorry. But... This place is frequented by famous people and members of the underworld. Because you I mean everyone knows who members of the underworld are, not not everyone knows who every person in the underworld is because there are members of the underworld that no one knows they're members of the underworld. Is it like the Sopranos where they all wear kind of matching tracksuits or are they um, look these particular people all drive really nice motor cars. Mm-hmm. They all live in very expensive suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so, I... Now, this this particular well-known gangster, um, I'm sitting in my ute. Now, there's something sacrilegious about people and their utes. You don't... I mean, you don't come up and lean against someone's ute, particularly if the owner is inside the ute. But this particular person a few weeks ago comes Because I'd seen this person. I'd seen them get out of their magnificent motor car. They bought a coffee. This particular person walks down the street. He then stands behind my ute. Get ready for this. He then rests his hot coffee on the back of my ute.
1: Now, on the back of the... So, do you mean on the kind of canvas? Yeah, on the, to- yeah, on the tonneau cover. Okay.
3: And then he lights up a cigarette. And he's on his mobile phone. Bit... I kind of, I've I kind of got this story a little bit mixed up. Bear with me. Okay. I'm looking in the rear vision mirror. Yeah. And I'm really getting annoyed. Yeah. To think that someone would do that. Mm-hmm. It's very important, listeners, to realise that at this stage, I actually didn't know who the guy was. <coughs> I'm just looking and, I can, and I'm getting really, really pissed off. He's putting it mildly. Yeah. I mean... You just don't do that. I'm about to get out of the ute and go around to have words with this person. Jesus Christ! Okay. And the person, just as I'm about to get out of the ute, Mm -hmm. I'm looking at him in my rearview mirror.
1: Wait, 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 wait! Sorry, I somehow missed the the fact that you were in the ute. I'm I'm in the ute. You're in in my ute.
3: ute. I'm sitting in my ute, and this guy's come up. Fucking bananas! No, it's really upsetting. Yeah, I know. And I'm just about to get out of the ute. (laughs) Got sick. And go around and say to this particular person, look... And I was really pissed off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the rub. Yeah. Fate intervened. Oh. And this is one of the most... I'd go so far as to say... Yeah, this is one of the most notorious crime figures in Australia. He then grabs his coffee, Mm -hmm. he walks along the footpath up past my ute, completely oblivious to the fact that I'm in my ute and I don't think he cared. He then walks up to another very famous person Mm -hmm. that everyone in Sydney knows. Is this a crime person or a regular person? No, not a crime person. Okay. And they hug each other. And it was there in that moment I had a minor epiphany. And I thought to myself, I now know who these... Well, it was pretty obvious who the other guy was. Yeah. But I then instantly had a, had a, a moment. where my sphincter snapped shut, I sat in my ute, almost paralyzed, and realized who this person was and what may have happened to me had I got out of my ute and gone around and had words with this particular person. It would have been... Really uncool. I would probably have to have sold my ute that day Mm -hmm.
1: and maybe worn a disguise. You know what you should have done? Just driven off with the coffee on the back. Um, Because then you can claim ignorance, right? You just claim ignorance. You're like, sorry, mate. I'm sorry. Sorry, because the coffee, (laughs) no, you don't
3: say sorry to people like this. Anyway, it's a fun guessing game for the people in Australia, not overseas. Uh-huh. But for the people listening in Australia, yeah. they can they can they can guess till the cows come home. Can you give us a clue? No, no clues at all. Sh-
1: come on. Like a really, really obtuse clue. I'm not talking initials. Okay, so how's this like,
3: sound? One guy's big and one guy's small. Uh, That's all I'm saying.
1: Do you reckon some people already know who it is? Don't know. What if the guy listens? What well, if he was trying to su- no? What if he was subtly trying to in- get start a convo with you because he's a fan of the show? That's possible. You know, if I put my coffee on his, he- I'm so ne- oh my god, I'm so nervous. Like it's John Verhoeven. Oh shit! Um, all right, you know what I'll do? I'll put my coffee on. I'll pretend to take a phone call so I look really important, and then Oh, he hasn't noticed. I he doesn't need.
3: He doesn't need to look important, Paul. He is important. Anyway, look, that's one of those situations where sometimes it's best just to hasten slowly, and time. Um, Time and, and situation intervened in that on that fortuitous uh, morning and I, I, I sort of sat there for some time in my Ute looking at the two of the guys, um, thinking it, I'm really happy I didn't go up to, to him and I'm really happy. And but he may he may have may well have been very sort of civil. Um so yeah, that was that was an encounter um, with this particular person.
1: That's pretty bizarre. Mm. Um you remember we mentioned Lenny McPherson before? Mm. So in this article it goes on to say During the course of the commission it was put to Saffron That he was the notorious Mr. Sin which he denied The commissioner mentioned a recent appearance By the not yet notorious Lenny McPherson On John Law's radio program Why the fuck Mm. are they putting this guy on the radio When Laws asked if Mr. Sin Was an appropriate title for Saffron McPherson said no, Saffron is the loveliest person You could meet and he had met him seven times A furious Saffron told the commission he had never Heard of McPherson let alone met him and Buckingham, uh, that's the niece, I believe, confirms they had known each other very well. Um, I know that uh, Abe Saffron tried to take the age to court over the title Mr. Sin. Uh, it was mm. settled out of court. Uh, he lost a lawsuit against the Sydney Morning Herald for using it in 2003, but before he died, the Gold Coast Bulletin settled in action over the 2004 crossword puzzle that had as a clue Sydney Underworld figure nicknamed Mr. Sin. <laughs> Apparently he was, very re- he was very reclusive, and... Um, mm. And he died from a leg infection. It's always weird how the, the big crime bosses tend to die in their mansions, you know, as, as a Valencia orange falls to the floor or... Mm, it's tax- weird. It's
3: weird. Paul, Paul um, <clears throat> uh, last night mm. I was watching the, uh, the Antiques Roadshow. Yes. On the ABC. And they had this... Um, a guy that had a traveling exhibition of an early fun park and it was incredibly involved. The, the technology, and it was, but it was sort of dated. It was, I guess, from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And um, and they had a ride, or some of the rides on it were exactly the same as Lunar Park. So I'm watching this sort of wonderful um, travelling miniature version of a theme park, That's like weird. Lunar Park. Yeah. And it was so weird. And then you contacted me... After that show, oh, later on that night, mentioning Lunar Park, and I'd already, yeah, <laughs> um, but it's fascinating. I mean, so there's the whole Lunar Park sort of re- re- recurring thing happening.
1: Have you been? And like, have you been at any point since that f- the fire that you put out there all those years ago? Did you? No, no, I haven't. Hang on, no, we went as a family. We went and did the Big Dipper together. Remember? Um, not sure I remember. You, you don't remember? Hmm. Are you sure we didn't do that in Melbourne? I'm 100% sure, Dad.
3: Cool, okay. This is before... um... I I find amusement parks not amusing Mm -hmm. in the slightest. You're a fun guy, Dad. The the whole concept of that big face, which is the same or similar face, like the one in Melbourne, and you go inside and there's a bit of a uh, sort of a miserable feeling about the place. I find them really... I just... There's something about them. I find them disturbing... Um, I went on the ghost train as a young boy. I went on all the rides. Um, I found the ghost train not scary at all. In fact, I used to think it was almost
1: a waste of money. Um, But that's me. Can I just point something out, Dad? You know that Australia's lunar parks are not real amusement parks. They're really not. They are... You, You and Mum and Anne had an invite to... Paris Disneyland the day after the wedding and you didn't come and I swear to god it would have just blown your mind because when I came back and then uh Tegan and I went across to Luna Park in Melbourne and rode the scenic roller coaster we just went ah shit we just don't it just doesn't it doesn't work so I mean I found it interesting that you, someone who doesn't like amusement parks or clowns or fun, apparently, kept getting dragged back to this place, and Lenny Mcpherson had such a kind of pivotal recurring role mm. in this place, and I would be curious to see whether your thoughts on it had changed if you went there now in the in the cold light of day. I know Look, it's um, yeah. yeah,
3: but Paul, can I just take you up on that thing where you said I'm not into fun <laughs> yeah while- while you were saying that, yeah. I just Googled the word fun. Yeah, that's something fun people would do, by the way. And my name was at the top of the page, okay? So, I'm one of the original funsters, okay? And also... Paul,
1: my... I'm a fun person. <laughs> I'm a funster.
3: Paul, I am a...
1: I, I am. and um... But controlled, sensible fun. Let's not go crazy, <laughs> all right? Yeah. yeah. Safety so, first. that so,
3: so there is a real theme with, with Luna Park. And, yeah. um, and I don't know whether that night I went to that, um, that arson where they turned off the main stop valve and, mm. and Coney Island was basically part of it, like the slides were on fire. I would be so fascinated to find out whether that investigation, um, you know, just how far they got. Because I know back then, whenever there were members of the underworld involved, mm. and, and of course that included crooked police, um imagine how many things were swept under the carpet
1: 100% you know 100% and, and, and it's it- so
3: terrible to think about all the the you know the
1: crimes that were never never properly investigated yeah and also luna park is prime real estate i mean if you've been to oh, sydney yeah it's mm. fucking amazing i mean it is it's extraordinary and it, it it's crazy i i still don't know how it's still there given you know the uh given the government's sort of willingness to just wholesale sell off, you know, iconic things and let them be bulldozed mm. to make way for property. But, I mean, it is mm. just this sort of literal, it's it's seaside, it's under the bridge, it's amazing. So it seems very, I mean, kind of obvious that someone like Abe Saffron, who wanted to acquire as much land as possible and, you know, own as many things as possible, would try and find a way to surreptitiously just sort of wipe it off the map. Do you mm. think... That, so, oh, God. And the fact that people died in that fire, you know? Yeah, terrible. And, and
3: it's but th- I don't... Look, I, I think, you know, if you're an arsonist, mm. I, I'm quite sure, because I know that it started as a very, very small fire. Well, I guess you could say that all fires start that way. But, you know, at least a part of me thinks that the arsonist, should it be proven that it was indeed arson, I'm I'm quite sure that the arsonist probably didn't sort of, you know, consider the fact that people may die, particularly oh, children.
1: True, but, I mean, if you are driving down the street drunk and you hit uh, a pregnant woman and she dies you still hit a pregnant woman, right? Mm. Like your intention yeah. is not really... Like fucking intention. you were driving the ball, recklessly. You know?
3: You're right, but that is the difference between murder and... Um, manslaughter, right? And manslaughter, because yeah. like I've said to you and the listeners before, the proofs of a crime are like a cake, the ingredients. If you remove one ingredient, it's no longer, for example, a fruit tart. So for murder, you need all the proofs for murder. Mm. And that's, if you don't have all the, the proofs, then, you, then it has to revert to a lesser crime. Yeah. Um, but it seems like... The like the person, it, it, yeah. Well, the person that set out um, intoxicated or stoned mm. and 999,000 times
1: out of a million... Yeah. Um, people get home safely. It just seems to me like history has already... Decided what kind of a person Abe Saffron is. You know, you can oh, yeah, pro- yeah. you can protest about the kind of you know the nuances of well, technically he was never convicted, all that other shit. But mm, the fact yeah. is, you know, people kind of know just by reputation what kind mm. of a person he was. And I, yeah, I, I know that's yeah. not the same as justice for those things, but it certainly means that you know, I for one don't feel bad talking about these things as if they more than likely happened. And I think yeah. it's look, I, you know, it was no, I don't think it was ever conclusively proven that he ordered the arson of the of Luna Park. But I find it so weird how this is just bound together. It's like these margins around the corners of the police careers of yourself and mum. I mean, mm. you know, no, just before she becomes a cop, she sees the fires and unbeknownst to her, that was potentially lit by Abe Saffron, who then becomes a key figure through your life. And then one of your last cases as a firefighter is putting out an attempted arson at Luna Park, which is probably by his orders again. And I just find it so... I mean, cosmically, it feels like if Abe Saffron from Beyond the Grave knew that you repeatedly stymied him, you know, this is like this is like Daredevil and Wilson Fisk. I mean, it's not a reference you would get. Uh, it doesn't matter. I, I really just find it interesting that this guy has become such a, you know, a, a key figure in the in the background of mm. your careers. So mm. um, no, it's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. Paul. Yeah. Well, we hope you enjoyed this Abe Saffron themed episode. the Save Saffron-themed episode of Loose Units Origins. We will be back later this week uh, for more Loose Units. And Dad and I, in a future episode, are going to be talking about the true crime-ish Netflix series, Wild Wild Country. It is award-winning. It is absolutely breathtakingly weird. And if you haven't already seen it, maybe just, uh, you know, treat it as homework. And also, one more thing make sure you grab a copy. If you haven't already grabbed a copy, I know we talk about this all the time, but please grab a copy of Electric Blue for yourself, for loved ones, and let's get this climbing up the charts. Uh, Hope you're all doing well. Have a great week, and we'll see you on Friday for more Loose Units. Bye. Cheerio.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.